open your Bibles to John's Gospel, chapter 18. We'll be preaching this morning in verses 1 through 14. So John chapter 18, verses 1 through 14. And as you turn there, please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank You for our Savior Jesus Christ, who has made a full atonement for our sins. We thank You for His active and His passive obedience. For Him fulfilling perfectly the requirements of the law and for receiving the punishment that we deserve on the cross. Lord, we pray now that as we hear from Your Word, that we would be reminded of the marvelous promises from Your Word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hear the word of the Lord from John 18, verses 1 through 14. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who, uh, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. May God bless the reading of His holy word and let His church say, Amen. Amen. As we are moving now from Jesus' farewell discourse in which He had washed the disciples' feet and talked with them about abiding in Him and bearing fruit and even explaining to them the significance of the cross. Even predicting that He would be betrayed by one as we have moved away from the farewell discourse of Jesus and moved into this section of John's Gospel where we will see the passion of Christ. As we started here in John chapter 18, as we move now into this portion, this 
later portion of John's Gospel, I want us to consider as we begin who orchestrated the arrest and crucifixion of Jesus. Who orchestrated the arrest and crucifixion of Jesus? And there are some options here for us to consider. First, we ought to consider if the Romans orchestrated the arrest and crucifixion of Jesus. And after all, we confess this morning in the Apostles' Creed that Jesus suffered under whom? Pontius Pilate, the governor established by the Romans, that Pilate is there responsible. I mean, we see here in this passage that Roman soldiers and a captain are present in the arrest of Jesus. And they even try Jesus and issue forth the death sentence to Jesus. We ought also to consider if the Jews are responsible for the arrest and crucifixion of Jesus. I mean, after all, as we've been reading through John's Gospel, they are antagonistic and oppose the ministry of Jesus the whole time, don't they? We read about them conspiring to kill Jesus. We read here that the Sanhedrin, their high court, has, has determined to put Jesus to death. They even send along their temple police along with the Roman soldiers in order to arrest Jesus. And at every signs, we at every turn we see the Jews rejecting the signs of Jesus and his teachings and opposing him. Was it the Romans? Was it the Jews? Or maybe it was Judas. We see him referenced here again in this chapter where Judas is the one who did what? He betrayed Jesus. We know that Judas is identified as the son of perdition. We know that Judas had been stealing money from the ministry of Jesus and that he sold Jesus, access to Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. And so maybe it is Judas who is responsible for this. He is the one after all who not only betrayed Jesus, but identified him with a kiss for his arresters. Who orchestrated the arrest and the crucifixion of Jesus? Who's responsible for it? Before we answer that question, I want you to see here, Jesus knew He was going to be arrested before He was arrested. Do you see that here in verse 4? Jesus was fully aware of all that was going to happen to Him. Jesus has been in a room, gathered with His disciples, enjoying a meal, and in verse 1, He leaves. Each movement of Jesus in this chapter is with intentionality. He leaves the city of Jerusalem and He, he goes out. It's about a mile walk, we think down through a valley, down through a dry creek bed, and up onto a hillside where there was a garden. We get this picture here that there is probably some sort of walled enclosure or maybe a house where Jesus enters into this place. And it must have been common for them because it says here that Judas, who betrayed Jesus, that he knew the place. 
and that Jesus had often gone there with his disciples. So perhaps this is a wealthy benefactor supporting the ministry of Jesus who has a garden and there's a, a little home or an enclosure or a house or something there. And they are offering this to Jesus for his use as a place of retreat and accommodations for Jesus during his ministry. And so it's on this night that after Jesus has prayed, uh, after he has shared a meal and washed the disciples' feet, they uh, retreat now and go to this location. And Judas is fully aware that this is the location, this is the place where Jesus will go with his disciples after they are finished with the meal. And so in verse 3, we read that Judas has planned all this out. That he has sold access to Jesus to the Sanhedrin and they send their temple police and uh, they also get a band of Roman soldiers together. This was during the time of a Jewish festival and there were increased crowds in Jerusalem and so it was commonplace for the Romans to send extra soldiers, extra detachments of soldiers into Jerusalem to make certain that the peace was kept. And so the expectation here is that upon the arrest of Jesus that there will be some sort of a riot, that there will be some sort of violence, that there will be some sort of revolt. And so not only are the temple police there to arrest Jesus, but the Roman soldiers are there to ensure that the peace is kept. And so they all gather together with their lanterns and their torches and set out into the night with their weapons prepared to arrest Jesus. And in verse 4, we read Jesus being absolutely omniscient. Look at verse 4. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him. He is aware of all of this, John tells us. He left that meal knowing that he was going to the garden and that there he would be arrested. Jesus knew that the temple police would be there. Jesus knew that the Roman soldiers would be there. Jesus knew that Judas would be the one to betray him and to identify him with a kiss. Jesus is aware of all of this. And yet, Jesus does not shirk back from this. Knowing that this would be his arrest, Jesus doesn't try to make plans to uh, weasel out of the circumstances. Jesus doesn't make contact with the Sanhedrin and ask for a sit-down meeting to try and, and pacify all the parties involved. Jesus doesn't even flee the area. Jesus doesn't try to uh, skip town and, and, and get out of Dodge. Jesus doesn't even go to a hiding location. He doesn't go to a secret location. He doesn't look at His disciples and say, hey, listen, uh, this is the night that... Uh, I'll be arrested if we go to the garden house, if we go to the garden, so we have to find another place for me to stay tonight. Jesus doesn't send His disciples there as decoys while He Himself hides away. Jesus doesn't do any of that. He is fully aware of what lies ahead for Him. In fact, as they approach... Jesus is even the one who initiates the contact with them. You see that here in verse 4? 
Jesus asked them, whom do you seek? Isn't that interesting? Jesus already knows the answer, doesn't he? But he initiates the contact with them. And they answer him in verse 5 that they are seeking Jesus. And Jesus' response to them is so extraordinary. I want you to see this here. How does Jesus answer when they say that they're searching for Jesus of Nazareth? It's two words in Greek. Ego, I mean. Jesus saying, I am. Does that sound familiar? We translate that here in English as I am he, but really the words are I am. Does that sound familiar to you? Who else has said I am? Well, Jesus has been saying I am seven times in the Gospel of John, hasn't he? I am the bread of life. I am the good shepherd. I am the door. All these different I am sayings of Jesus, and it's an echo of Exodus chapter 3 of the great I am, isn't it? Where Moses is there on hallowed ground before the burning bush, and God reveals himself to Moses as I am. And here the arresters have come to Jesus, and Judas is there with them, and Jesus asks, Whom do you seek? And Jesus doesn't just identify Himself. He reveals His deity to His arresters. Jesus says, I am. And in response to this, His arresters are powerless to lay hold of Him. Look at verse 6. When Jesus said to them, I am He, or I am, what did they do? They drew back And they did what? They fell to the ground. There's a lot of theories about what happened to Jesus. A lot of bad theories. The early church had to fight the the lie that Jesus was put to death and that His disciples faked His resurrection by stealing His body. I heard it claimed that Jesus was a religious zealot whose ethical message and religious message got him martyred. I've heard it claimed that Judas here actually had good intentions in betraying Jesus, that Judas was attempting zealously to force Jesus' hand and force Jesus into a situation where he would establish his kingdom Establish his throne on Jerusalem. There's also the theory that Jesus set apart his deity in his incarnation, and as a result, Jesus was powerless by the events that are happening to him. We should understand here that the Bible contradicts all these theories. Jesus knew He was going to be arrested before He was arrested. In fact, His arresters are powerless to arrest Him. Jesus reveals His deity to them and they fall down to the ground. So I know what you're thinking here. Well, if if they couldn't arrest Him, then they're innocent of their actions. What's the Bible say 
about this. In Acts chapter 2, Peter, he talks about Jesus and he tells the Jews, you crucified and killed Jesus by the hands of lawless men. So he condemns not only the Jews, but also the Romans saying, you used them to crucify and to kill Jesus. And as a result, they are called upon to repent and be baptized and put their faith in the Gospel. Jesus, this whole time, is not passive in these events. He's not caught by surprise. He's not powerless. Jesus knew He was going to be arrested before He was arrested. If Jesus knew this, what about after His arrest? Maybe He knew that He was going to be arrested before He was arrested, but maybe He didn't understand that His arrest would lead to the cross. Maybe He didn't understand the significance of the cross. Look with me here at verses 10 and 11, and you'll see that Jesus not only knew about His arrest before He was arrested, He knew that His arrest would lead to the cross. turned out that the expectations of violence were, were real. Peter here, who is present with Jesus, who has already pledged that he would give his life for Jesus, he is seen here as drawing out his sword and striking the servant of the high priest. And he's named for us here in verse 10. His name is Malchus. Naming this victim of Peter's violence not only added credibility to John's testimony, but also perhaps to give the early readers um, uh, a name to go and validate these claims. Maybe Malchus was someone who was still living. And maybe Malchus had come to put his faith in Jesus Christ after all these events. And so it, perhaps this is John's way of saying, look, if you want to know if the story is true, you know that guy Malchus? Go ask him about the night that Peter cut his ear off. So it turns out that the expectations of violence... We're true. Peter takes out his sword and cuts off the ear of Malchus. Luke records for us that Jesus touched the ear and healed it. I know what you're thinking here. Peter must be pretty handy with the sword, huh? I mean, it must be really difficult to cut someone's ear off. I think probably the way we should understand this I don't think Peter was aiming for Malchus's ear. I think Peter got Malchus's ear, but I think he was aiming for Malchus's head. Jesus rebukes Peter in verse 11. Put your sword away, Peter. You don't understand what's happening right now, do you, Peter? You don't understand the significance of these events. You don't understand, Peter, that my kingdom will not be established by violence and by the sword. My kingdom is going to be established in the hearts 
of men and women. My kingdom will not be established by getting together a mob to go and riot in Jerusalem and to overthrow the Roman occupation of Jerusalem. My kingdom is going to be established by going to the cross, Jesus says. He describes this as Him taking the cup that the Father has prepared for Him. This was a common analogy in the Old Testament. The cup is an analogy of God's wrath. Let me give you some examples. Psalm 75, verses 7-8. through It is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine well mixed, and He pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. Psalm says, the Psalms say. The prophets use this analogy of God's foaming hot cup of wrath that is poured out upon people in judgment. Jeremiah 25 Take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. They shall drink and stagger and be crazed because of the sword that I am sending among them. It is as if what Jeremiah is saying that they will be drunken. They will become drunk from the wine of God's wrath and judgment that is poured out upon them. In the book of Comfort, the prophet Isaiah comforts God's people that though they had drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of His wrath, that God would remove this cup from them. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Ezekiel 23, Habakkuk chapter 2, they both use this analogy of God's judgment being contained in a cup of God's wrath that is poured out. And those who receive the judgment drink it down. Every last drop. Even in the book of Revelation, Babylon the Great is personified as a harlot. And her her cup of sinful wine is exchanged for a cup of God's hot wrath in judgment that she is to drink and to drain down. Isn't it interesting here that this is the way, this is the analogy that Jesus chooses to use to describe the cross. On the cross, Jesus would take the cup of God's wrath and He would drain it down to the dregs. He would consume every last drop of God's judgment contained in that cup of His wrath. Some progressive theologians, they they shudder at the thought that Jesus would take upon Himself God's wrath. They describe this as cosmic child abuse. Cosmic child abuse. One theologian wrote, A vengeful father punishing his son for an offense he has not even committed. Understandably, both people inside and outside of the church have found this twisted version of events morally dubious, he charges, and a huge barrier to faith. 
Deeper than that, however, he claims, is that such a concept stands in total contradiction of the statement that God is love. It's inconceivable, they would say, that Jesus would receive God's wrath as an innocent person. We describe this as Jesus' descent into hell. We profess that in the Apostles' Creed today. Heidelberg Catechism describes Jesus' descent into hell as the inexpressible anguish, pains, terrors, and hellish agonies in which Jesus was plunged during all His sufferings, especially on the cross. Jesus knew He was going to be arrested before He was arrested. And Jesus knew that His arrest would lead Him to the cross And He went willingly. For the joy set before Him, He endured the cross. Who orchestrated the arrest and crucifixion of Jesus? You need to know it wasn't the Romans. It wasn't the Jews. It wasn't Judas. It was God. This was God's plan all along that Jesus would come, that He would take on flesh and that He would bear in His body the punishment for His people, that He would bear in His person the punishment that you and I deserved. Why would He do that? Please don't miss this in this passage. Here's the reason why. Better for Jesus to die for your sins and for mine than for you and I to perish in our sins. That's why. That's why He was willingly arrested. That's why He was willingly arrested knowing that His arrest would lead to the agonies of the cross. He did that for you and me because it was better for Jesus to die for your sins than for you to perish in your sins. You say, well, where does this passage teach that? It's pronounced on the lips of Caiaphas, the high priest, in John chapter 11, verse 30, and repeated here. Look at verse 13. Jesus is taken by His arresters. He's taken to, he's taken to Annas first. You need to know that there were essentially two high priests. Annas was the high priest, and this was a position that the high priest would hold for life. However, the Romans had deposed Annas from his office and flexed their power over the Jews. And they despised this. And they had set up a puppet high priest. Four different sons of Annas, and now Caiaphas, the son-in-law of Annas. And so Caiaphas is holding the position of high priest, but the real high priest is Annas. And so they take Jesus to Annas first to be examined. This is the beginning of Jesus' Jewish trial. So Jesus has two trials. He has a trial from the Jews and He's condemned. He has a trial from the Romans and He's condemned. And so here, this is the beginning of His Jewish trial. He's taken before Annas. 
And this Caiaphas is the one who frames all these events unwittingly back in John chapter 11, verse 50. The Sanhedrin was gathered and they were talking about the signs of Jesus. What are we going to do about this Jesus? If He keeps on going and performing all these signs, everyone is going to put their faith in Jesus. We've got to stop Him. And the Romans are going to come and take away our position. And Caiaphas, Scripture says, John says, unwittingly that he prophesied. And that he said, don't you understand, it's better for one man to perish than for the whole nation. Here John repeats that for us. Framing these events, why was Jesus arrested? Because it was more expedient for one man to die for the people, John says in verse 13. It's better for Jesus to die for your sins than for you to perish in them. Because Jesus died for your sins, He can say to you what He says of the disciples here. In fact, what He commands of the disciples, fulfilling His own prophecy. Look at verse 8. Let these men go. The arresters have come to take Jesus and Jesus commands them and they obey. Let these men go. Let's just pause here for a moment. The disciples are sinful men. And their faith has faltered greatly. And if they were arrested and if they were killed, they would deserve that as an act of God's judgment. And Jesus says... Let them go. Why did He say that? To fulfill His own Word. That of those that the Father had given Him, not one would be lost. Why? Because it's better for Jesus to die for your sins and for mine than for you and I to perish for them. Jesus hadn't even gone to the cross yet. And His disciples are delivered. Their debt was already considered paid. Several years ago, Gina Marie and I lived in Tallahassee before we had kids. And we had all sorts of free time and extra money. We accepted a dinner invitation with her boss uh, to the University Center Club. It's at Dope Campbell Stadium. High up in the stadium with windows overlooking Bobby Bowden Field. It's for members only and their guests. It's not the sort of place that we had expendable income to just go whenever we wanted. But we got the invitation from Jim and Linda Sims. Gina Marie worked for Mr. Jim and he invited us to the, to the University Center Club for dinner, not during a game, although that would have been really neat. We went there and enjoyed this wonderful meal together. It was delicious. We enjoyed the fellowship. We enjoyed the views. And then it came time to the end of the dinner. It was time for us to depart. We got up 
from the table, and I looked at Mr. Jim, and I said, uh, where's the bill? He just laughed. He just looked at me, and he just laughed. He said, and he's a true Southern gentleman, he said, oh, David, it's done already been done paid. I said, what are you talking about? He said, oh, this meal has already been paid for. I'm a member here. And my account is on file. They don't even bring a bill to the table. It gets charged to my account and the bill has already been paid for our meal. You want to know why? It's better for Jesus to die for your sins than for you to perish in them because the bill has already been paid. When you are invited to feast with Jesus, when He calls you to have fellowship with Him, He calls you because your debt for sin and mine have already been paid, has already been paid by the Lord Jesus Christ. And so you and I, we don't receive the bill that we rightly owe for our sin. Jesus has already paid it. And what we receive is blessing and grace and forgiveness. There's a lot of people who will object to that and they'll say, hey, listen, Pastor, the death of Jesus, it made the forgiveness of sins possible for everyone, but it didn't accomplish their salvation. Jesus went to the cross and grace is possible, salvation is possible, but it's up to a person whether or not they accept or reject that out of their own Free will. Maybe they'll be saved because Jesus died for them. Maybe they won't be saved because Jesus has died for them. If that's true, you have a big problem in this verse, in this passage, staring at you there in verse 9. Not one for whom Jesus has died will be lost. What are you saying, Pastor? I'm saying that the cross worked. That the atonement of Jesus accomplished its purpose for all eternity. That those whom the Father has given to the Son, that when the Son went to the cross and He said, it is finished. He could say, it is finished because He accomplished their salvation on the cross. We know it's impossible for Jesus to lie. We know it's impossible for God to lie. And we know that the atonement worked and that not a single one will be lost Jesus death on the cross the wrath of the father he received in our place it accomplished all that the father had predetermined for it to do the forgiveness of our sins why did Jesus go to the cross because it was better for Jesus to die for your sin and then for you to perish in them. Do you know that to be true for you this morning? Not just as a historical fact 
of an event that occurred 2,000 years ago as a, a good thing to look to, as a good example to look to, but do you know that to be true? For you personally. Not just in your head, but do you know that to be true in your own heart? That Jesus went to the cross for your sin. That He would bear your sin. That He would bear the wrath of God that you deserved. And that I deserved. And that He would do that. So that we don't have to perish in our sin. What a gift of grace we have in our Savior Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank You for our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who has made a full satisfaction for our sin. And that He can look to us and say to us like He did of His disciples, let these men go. That we would receive a full pardon. Even though we justly deserve punishment. Even though we justly deserve Your wrath for our sin. But in Your mercy and in Your grace, You have given us our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ who has made a full atonement for our sins. I pray, Lord, this morning that if there are any here who have not yet put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, that today would be the day of salvation. That they would look to You in faith and that, that You died. Not just for the sins of the world, but that You died for them. I pray, Lord, for those who are believers this morning, that they would be reminded of that, even as we come to the table of the Lord this morning, that it would be a sign and seal that point to this great news, this good news, this gospel, that the debt has been paid. The account has been settled. More than that, we pray that You would draw near to us by Your Spirit that we might have fellowship with our Savior, Jesus Christ. It's in His name that we pray. Amen.